everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series in Bamidbar is titled Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. Each episode explores the manner in which the Parsha reflects the maturation of the people and of Moshe's leadership during the wilderness period. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parshat Naso. To draw upon terms mentioned in last week's conversation, weighs heavily on the side of order, with seemingly unconnected sets of laws and instructions placed together in this week's Parsha. It opens with the Levite census, counted in their own census and not in the one that opened the book of Amidbar, because of their unique status as temple servants. The Torah then commands that impure individuals leave the encampment. We read about the ceremony of the adulterous wife, or the Isha Sota, which will be the focus, really, of today's conversation. The laws of the Nazir, of the Nazarite, the priestly blessing, and the Parsha concludes with the tribal prince's inaugural sacrifices, a long and repetitive section that reminds us of the detail provided in the four Parsha at the end of Shemot regarding the tabernacle construction. Check out episode 59 for last year's wonderful conversation with Rabbi Alex Israel on the concept of Nazir in Judaism. Today, welcome back returning guest, Rabbanit Nechama Goldman-Barish, who teaches at Matan, Pardis, and Midrasha TVA. She writes a monthly column on Judaism for the Jerusalem Post and is a graduate of Matan's Advanced Talmud Institute, their Hilchata program, and is U.S. at Halacha. She is currently awaiting publication of a book on women and Halacha. Nechama, it's great to have you back. Hi, Yosefa. It's great to be here. So let's take a deep dive into this week's Parsha and sort of the multiple... Uh, dimensions of the Parsha before we really focus more on the Sota episode? There are so many, I think, interesting social issues that arise in this Parsha. And as you already sketched out, we have the census. And although we've already counted previously the the general nation, the, the, the most of the tribes, what we have here is a focus on Shevet Levi, which to me is really a focus on spiritual leadership. And they are being pulled out and spotlighted separately because the reality is in order for any good community, any healthy community to thrive, we need to know who our leaders are. We need to count them and have them be accountable towards us. And so I really think there's something uh, interesting about opening up here with a separate census about the leadership. I mean, I think that as we sort of are focusing on the order of the encampment, so we're focusing on both sides, both who leads us and of the regular Israelites, who's allowed to be there, right? Who has a right to be there? Who's allowed to be part of the of the collective? And so, yeah, in this in this week's parsha, the focus on the Levi'im who, who've been consecrated, but now we have a sense of how many there are, and and of course what their what their established roles will be. And that continues as you you know the the fact that the Parsha opens and closes with leadership, because at the end of the Parsha, we have the Nisim, right? We have the princes who are the leaders within the tribes. And to me, that really brings up interesting questions about hierarchy and the complexity of hierarchy in a tribe, in a community, in a camp. 
the potential for all the good leadership can bring, but unfortunately, as we know, sometimes the potential for corruption of leadership. The next thing that we see in the Parsha, which also I think touches on um, significant social issues, are the removal of people from the camp who are essentially blameless because they have a form of tum'ah, uh, physical impurity, for lack of a a better translation, and the the idea that the zav, someone who has a discharge from their body, someone who has a condition defined as tsara'at, has to leave the camp. There's no correlation between transgression or behavior and this bodily situation. And um, as I said, there's a blamelessness and almost an unfairness to it. And I would say really the question of how do we responsibly connect to people who are forced to leave the camp? How do we maintain a connection to those we isolate through no fault of their own? And, you know, this is going to be another layer of maturity Sometimes people do have to leave the camp. Uh, I would even connect it to the recent COVID pandemic, right? This idea that people had to self-isolate, sometimes at extreme risk to their mental health, sometimes to their physical health. We did it for the greater good. But I think the, the best stories were those communities, particularly Jewish communities, that found ways to really stay connected to their most vulnerable populations, delivering food packages or Zoom classes or phone calls or however it was. So to me, that section of the Parsha is is particularly relevant because it is necessary to isolate certain people. But how do we bring them back? How do we connect to them? How do we bring them back? I think also what's important here is that it's actually a very short section. It's only really four psukim, four verses in the beginning of, of chapter five. And it's sort of information that we should have known earlier from the book of Aikra. But it's here uh, because here we're trying to figure out how this whole like house of ours is going to function. And so we have we have these laws here. And I agree with you that sort of a very important question socially becomes how do we how do we stay connected with them? But we're also learning about the fact that these conditions that we learned about in the book of Vayikra have another added dimension to them, which is that they have a social repercussion, which we might have put together in Vayikra, but here it really comes through very, very strongly. So it's just interesting and 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 suitable that here we really emphasize the social aspects of these impurities. Uh, and also, of course, lets us know that there's this extremely high standard of living, meaning we're not a kind of encampment that only focuses on the leadership. This is the Israelite encampment is not just about the those at the top of the hierarchy, but this these few psukim, these few verses really show us that there's a very high expectation for the purity of the camp and that it sort of it all depends on that. So while the the priests and the Levites hold a very important position, I think there's also something meaningful about the balance that it immediately gives by mentioning the fact that, and among the regular Israelites, obviously, of course, also priests or Levites who this happens to, but among the regular Israelites, they're also, they're important as well. And so if something goes wrong with them, they also have to make sure that they're on par with the yeah, standard. I really like that, the idea that individuals can, uh, can bring Tuma into the camp. And so each person matters, you know, whatever their physical, spiritual state of being is, it has impact. In this case, if I think back to Sefer Vayikra, um, 
we know that Tuma is contagious, right? There's a contagion to Tuma. And so that's, of course, going to have consequence on the camp as well. And so that interconnection that somewhat flattens the hierarchy, right? That uh, a Kohen could be Tameh and a Levi could be Tameh and a Yisrael, and they're all going to be treated the same way. Yeah. They're all going to have to leave the camp. Yeah, I think there's like a a really subtle like democratization of, and that you know everybody can contribute and everybody can also harm in the same uh, in the same way. And so there's sort of a collective res- responsibility here. And I would say that really continues into the next section, um, in where God says to Moshe, "Speak to the children of Israel." Ish o isha, right? If you have a man or a woman who transgresses towards another Adam, another human being, and then limol maal bahashem, that idea that it creates a, a, a betrayal of God, right? So what you end up finding out is betrayal of God is not only embedded in transgressions between uh, human beings and God in, in the manner of Shabbat or taking God's name in vain. But God is essentially stating quite explicitly that that form of betrayal takes place when we transgress towards one another, seemingly without God in the picture. Mm-hmm. Meaning if I, if I steal from someone, if I undercut someone, whatever the, the multiple transgressions can be towards one another, what, what concern is that for God? I'm keeping Shabbat, I'm eating kosher, I'm not taking the Lord's name in vain. And yet, uh, in a very, you know, it's also a very short section, but a very powerful one, this idea that that also creates a form of impurity, men and women, regardless of the tribe they come from. So, you know, as we evolve and emerge towards uh, nationhood, right, this idea of uh, solidifying or emphasizing the relational aspect between human beings, uh, regardless of, of gender, regardless of tribe, I think is very important. And of course, that section also reminds you of the the function of the Kohen, meaning of the priest. We have, again, there's this like this dance between both having the importance of the hierarchy because we need an address, we need a Kohen, we need our priest to officiate, and we'll see soon that, you know, the priest is also significant in the Sota process. But also, yes, that there's also some sort of of general equality among everybody and they can contribute or they can they can detract that point is also coming through here very clearly the next section is probably the section i focus on the most when i teach this parsha uh, it's the section of uh the man who uh, has jealous feelings um he accuses his wife or really it starts off with this idea that a man is concerned that his wife has gone astray the same form ma'alebo ma'al. It's very interesting because I just described for you the idea that God feels betrayal when we transgress between one another. And now that same language is used to describe the betrayal of infidelity. And I think that really encapsulates a lot of Midrashic ideas that God and B'nai Yisrael are in a marital, kviyachal, if I can say that, but the Midrash says that, relationship. And when we betray God, it's equated with the betrayal of husband and wife, of husband to wife, of wife to husband. And in this case, we're focusing on a wife betraying her husband. The same root word is used. It's not a common word. And that only reinforces the idea that when we betray God, it is akin to infidelity. And here we have a story of infidelity to remind us of what that looks like. 
you know, I'll just add in this piece. We've mentioned it in several episodes, but it's not just the Midrash that speaks about our relationship with God as a marriage, right? That's That comes through in all the times where the Psukim used the, the verb zana, right? That we, when we follow other gods, it's basically betraying or or whoring, quote unquote, against God. And we have passages from Malachi and other and other later prophets. And, and of course, Yirmiyahu famously in the second chapter and, and Hosea, where they're constantly comparing the relationship uh, between us and God also. So to a marriage, so Chazal uh, definitely emphasizes. But this comes through through the Torah, comes through also through the Nevi'im, and I think that there we've spoken in the past about all the imports for what that means about how our relationship with God is supposed to function, or how it can blossom, or how it could be even reciprocal in whatever way we understand it to be, because it's compared to a marriage. So I just wanted to add in that piece. It's one that we've mentioned in, in past episodes. What you have being described here, I think it's important to note it works in parallel. This idea of the first case scenario, v'shachav ishota shechvat zera v'ne'elam me'enei isha v'nistara v'hi nitma'a v'ed enba v'hi lo nitpasa. So you have a, a clear description of what I would say the guilt of the woman, but she's managed to get away with it. Why? Because the woman's body absorbs the seed of the man who is not her husband, of the lover, and she's able to hide it really within her body so that he has no way to prove where the infidelity is happening or how the infidelity is happening. And the ve'ed einba, right? There's no witnessing. And, you know, I'm going to suggest a wordplay, if I can, nit pasa, right? nit pasa is understood to mean she was not forced because it plays on the description in Devarim of a woman who is sexually assaulted and this idea of uh, she is she is caught, tafsa. Um, but I also think she is not forced and she is not caught. You yeah, really sure. can have a word, you know, a double meaning there. She's getting away with this. Yep. It was not, you know, uh, non-consensual. There are no witnesses. The zera is hidden in the folds of her body internally, and um, and really were meant to be outraged by uh, by this possibility. And he's jealous, and he's uh, rightfully jealous. And but then the Torah does something very interesting. And now we have a second possibility, and it's really much less words are spent on it, but this idea that he might have a jealous spirit, and she's completely blameless. She has not been defiled by infidelity. She has not been defiled by the seed of another man. And really, when you read this entire chapter, you must hold both of those scenarios side by side, that there are two possible women going through this procedure, the woman who has committed infidelity and thinks she's getting away with it, and the woman who is blameless. And both of those, in our mind, should be standing before the priests. And really, those are two different Two different visions. And so when I call it the process that happens to the adulterous woman, it's completely inaccurate. It's to the woman who is potentially adulterous, right? Because we need to hold both of those those options in our hand. That's a really piece here that that we sort of started off very often assuming that if he's jealous, he must have a reason to be jealous. For some reason, I think it's easy to sort of already find guilt in her from the beginning. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And I know that the theme of Ban Midbar is 
growing pains, the journey towards responsibility. And I really think you don't have to work that hard. How do we handle ambiguous situations responsibly, right? Here is a classic ambiguous situation. And in one, she's blameless and in one, she's innocent. And yes, I'm going to go perhaps deep on a micro level around the relationship of husband and wife. But I really think this is the kind of question, these are questions we can ask in a classroom setting, in a communal setting. We have a situation where there's circumstantial evidence. Uh, One person has strong feelings that the story is unfolding this way, but there's also the possibility for the narrative to go in another direction. Mm -hmm. And what we've done here is we bring in the Kohen and we bring in a process. It's not a simple process. It's not a particularly, I would even say, nice process, certainly not for the woman. But I believe the goal of it is to create some sort of clarity. And if the question is how to move from ambiguity to clarity, that really speaks to communities behaving responsibly, having some sort of protocol for how to respond to these kind of situations. Your language that you're using to describe this process is reminding me of the complexity that surrounds today in proving consent. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, meaning, right, I'm picking up on something here that's true. Meaning here we're trying to figure out what actually happened because the biblical text is pointing out the fact that in a relationship between a man and a woman, it's something that can't be grasped with their hands, right? When it has that very visual description of that the the zera is no longer visible. Mm-hmm. And it really points to the idea that in a connection between a man and a woman, there's something that you can't really hold on to. And so they, they're very powerful and then they dissipate. And so they're very hard to prove. And But it reminds me very much about the real complexity that we have legally trying to figure out how do we ascertain consent, right? These are moments that are they're so, uh, the Hebrew word that's coming up is chamakmak, like mm-hmm. they're slippery. They're so slippery. They're so slippery. It's so hard to, to define them. You know, I think another area, you know, moving away from, you know, consensuality in, in the sexual sphere, even something like, um, you know, an object goes missing from a classroom and there's almost intuitively the children or the people on staff that we suspect but we don't have any proof, right? And how easy is it to sometimes get away with these things? And how easy is it to accuse innocent people? And I think the idea of that you must bring it to a third party yeah. and go through a process, no matter what I do, I'm going to be calling forward uh, possibly a person who is innocent, possibly guilty, and making them go through a process of proving their innocence or establishing their guilt. But that's why I really think this Parsha can be um, expanded outward into questions that I think every school, community, I would even go with family, right, at times has to address. How do we handle those situations where we're suspicious of someone, whether they're guilty or innocent, and how do we move past that? And the idea that we need to bring in help, um, uh, outside counsel, uh, is, I think, an important lesson the Torah is giving us, and that there's a protocol, and that in this case, we're going to call on God's name as well to help us clarify, right? We're going to lean into our, um, our belief, our text, our relationship with God in order to try to resolve this. I also keep thinking about the, the priest because 
I'm, I'm thinking of the Parshiot and Vayikra, where the priest is also a doctor. I mean, not really, right? But when it comes to tzarat, so you're bringing these physical ailments, and now and now he's a marital therapist. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm thinking about it's such a multi, multidisciplinary role that the, the Kohanim had. And I think it also points, if we keep harking back to the beginning of the Parsha and like the leadership, it really does. It points to the fact that because all of these issues border on issues of tum'av, some sort of impurity, so the Kohen gets involved. But really, I mean, talk about a, a, a multi-layered rabbinic position that, that they had. And many rabbis do have to hold that kind they of... They do, very much, meaning they're there, they're dealing with all different issues of people's lives. And I feel like here, you, you really see that coming through when you see the Kohen involved, involved in this process. If we keep going through this Parsha, um, you know, there are a lot of things in here that are uh, that are somewhat difficult, right? There's the idea of the Allah, the idea that there's some sort of curse that she's going to internalize upon swallowing the water that has God's name erased into it. Um, of course, you know, the Ramban, by the way, says that we ultimately abolish this process because it simply relied on too many miracles. That's the Ramban. Uh, and we'll talk about, I'm sure you'll bring in other reasons why Chazal say that the, the process was abolished. But that one is very striking because this seems... This is the only supernatural exactly. uh, ritual described in the Torah. Yep. Right, and and Bible scholars comment on that that we don't we don't have this this idea that you're going to drink some water and there's going to be a response mandated by God. It's it's difficult. It's difficult to understand what's totally. happening here. I do want to point out one or two more things. First of all, the response is going to be her belly swelling and her thigh dropping. Um, she does not die. It seems to be there's some sort of physiological response. Certainly the belly swelling seems to resemble pregnancy, right? The thigh dropping seems to suggest some some impairment of her sexuality and her fertility, perhaps a mock pregnancy-like condition, but she's not pregnant. Maybe again, it swells if she's pregnant with another man's child. We don't know exactly, but I do want to say, and, and uh, you know, Bible scholars have commented on this as well, this is not a dangerous ritual. In other words, the danger, if you will, is God's name is erased into the water, and that's going to have impact. But um, whatever is happening within her body, the curse that is being borne out by her body is not going to kill her. However, there is going to be some sort of clarity that perhaps only she and her husband will know because if her belly swells and her thigh drops and she's wearing clothing, yeah, no, the only one who would know. potentially know would be her husband. And then at the end, right at the end, if she is cleansed, if she is uh, vindicated, then she will bear seed. And, um, and the last verse I want to call attention to before I talk a little bit about some midrashim that I find to be, uh, to be powerful that's the last verse in this section. It's verse 31. Um, the man is blameless, meaning he is cleansed without drinking the water from any sort of wrongdoing, even if she's innocent. So, and, and, and the woman will bear her sin if she's guilty. And I have to say that verse always bothered me. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how maybe one could read this Parsha that will make that a little, uh, a little less complicated. I think that that, that that Pasuk really points to the idea that what lies at the root of this whole ritual 
is not really about proving her innocence or her guilt. I think that what lies at the root of the ritual is really, and, and that's why it's called a minchat knaot, meaning it's a it's a, a meal offering of multiple jealousies. But what's at the root of this is his is his, sort of his feeling like he he's going crazy, right? He, he's he's really not sure what's going on here, and and so what needs to be cleared is this jealous spirit of his uh, of course it happens at the expense of uh, of the woman but if I, I could just maybe say even more that this ritual is really is meaning this man wishes to remain with his wife but he fears the consequences of that kind of decision because if she's been impurified then he thinks that maybe he can't be with her there has to be some sort of atonement process that she has to go through and so by going through this process it's it's really a way of of him clearing his conscience basically both that if he were remains with her that he knows that she's faithful and that their relationship is is still pure uh, and if not that she herself will will have gone through a purification process if in fact she required it so it sort of i think to me just highlights the fact that what is at the root of this is it's not really about adjudication i don't think that according to the biblical text it's very different according to chazal but according to the biblical text we really don't have a great way of as you said proving it'll prove between them but ultimately what we need to get rid of is this jealous spirit that they can actually have a relationship after this. Yeah, I really like that um, because at the end of the chapter, it doesn't say he divorces her. It certainly doesn't say she dies. And it suggests the marriage is going to continue in the aftermath. And the idea that she goes through this process by by drinking the water, by absorbing this curse, by absorbing God's name, by being cleansed by the minchat kanaut, which is actually her mincha. Right, it says very, very yes. specifically. Yes, and I wonder if that's then enough. Meaning, she's now paid some sort of due, pretty significant due. Right, there's a public aspect to it. Uh, the water, and and certainly, could not have been an easy experience to drink this water um, because of the implications. Her body will suffer some sort of consequence. And it seems like perhaps in the aftermath, uh, they'll be able to regain some sort of composure in their relationship, even if she's guilty. Now, if she's if she's guilty with witnesses, that's a whole other story, yeah. right? That mm-hmm. goes to the court, and that's potentially a capital, a capital punishment. But here, we're still left with the slipperiness of there are no witnesses. And so to me, the end is very interesting. It leaves us with a bit of a question mark, but I don't think there's any certainty that the marriage doesn't continue, even if she's guilty. I, I really feel that this is like a biblical version of therapy, meaning if there there was no official, we would call it criminal offense, right, that could be proven. It might have happened, but it can't be proven. And this is this is sort of the the Torah's way of trying to reestablish some sort of of domestic peace. Again, I I, I very much am aware of the fact that the the brunt of it is, is on the woman in this case, right? We don't have a, an opposite example, although I do believe that Chazal yeah, they extend that it to men he, as well. Yes, yes, they do. Uh, they do, and that that's a little bit reassuring. But I do, I feel like it's sort of the way of saying, you know, we have these we have these examples in life that are not going to fit into the judicial categories. So what do we do with them, right? We have all these cases that can come up, and, and so here we have this very unusual, <laughs> supernatural process, but I kind of feel like the modern parallel would be 
even for couples who know that there's been adultery, right? That they that they go through some sort of therapeutic process. And while we don't really see her going through a process here, we do understand that the husband has gone through some sort of therapeutic process. And I'm using that word glibly, but I mean it in the sense that he gets rid of his jealousy. And because he gets rid of his jealousy through this process, he's able to perhaps continue on in, in the marriage. And then even the idea that at the end, she is shatisat avona, right? She nisiat avon. Right, we we think of as some sort of bearing bearing the sin, but in a sense of um, carrying it and moving on past it. Yeah, right? meaning it, a, it could be it could be held. It's, it could be it's held. Not, it's not exactly. destroying anymore. Exactly. I yeah. really do think that, and yeah. uh, I have to say, it's the first time I've read through it this way and come to the conclusion we just came to, which is <laughs> uh, this idea that there's some, some sort of cleansing process for both of them. I mean, chuva, some sort of process of uh, returning to a baseline that they had lost. Things won't be the same. No. Her body is not going to be the same, right? Something has happened. However, it looks like this couple can can move on to the next stage in their relationship. And I, um, if I couple that with the idea that when we transgress, there's mi'ilah towards God, uh, when we transgress towards one another, it gives me hope that there too, right? If I go through the process, if I repent, if I seek atonement, then there can be nisiyat avon because God offers that in other parts of the Torah. And so I think that the juxtaposition of the, of the two um, narratives here in this Parsha, uh, I think work well together, that when there's infidelity between a husband and wife, there is hope for some sort of renewal, some sort of recovery. And I would like to move that then backwards to the idea when we betray God, then hopefully there's room for recovery and um, and moving forward. It's reminding me of some of the, I don't know if I could say lessons or the Torah of one of my favorite therapists, Esther Perel, who's mm. written and spoken a lot about infidelity. Yes. And she says a lot of really important things. But one of the things she says is that, you know, for many people, you know, adultery happens for all different reasons, and that will not be the topic of our conversation today. But for many couples, uh, it's the birthplace of the rest of their marriage. And so while that's like a less popular narrative, and, you know, sometimes people are ashamed into staying in a marriage, even when there's been adultery. But for many couples, exploring the reasons why that came to be and perhaps repairing what was what was broken before that ends up being the birthplace of of the rest of their life so i think that this idea of you know he gets cleansed and she can carry on and move on with again we're it's a generous reading of the last phrase of, of the section but that she can sort of move on with while carrying the avon i think is is sort of an image of that like they've entered into the next chapter of their marriage because uh, we're assuming that they haven't they're not divorcing but that that could be the birthplace of something that's better and i think that that parallel to relationship with god is very powerful meaning we are going to have one lifelong relationship with god but it's going to have many chapters and and sometimes our lowest points can lead us to to better places. And I think that that's a really, really important piece here. I do want to share one midrash, a midrash that I think really parallels the, the thought you brought. You brought a thought in which this is really about the husband and bringing clarity to the husband, uh, the ambiguity that is driving him crazy, that has created this uh, kanaut, this kinah, that he's not able to recover from. It's obsessing him. It's controlling him. And, you know, more modern readings talk about the possibility that excessive jealousy is a red flag, of course, for uh, abuse. So I want to go to Masechet Brachot, where they see within this text 
a totally different reading that completely empowers women and gives them agency in a way that, um, you know, is actually quite beautiful, but, and, and it's coming from Chazal. So let me, let me explain what I mean. There's this idea that Chana, right? It's, it's a chapter um, in Brachot that talks about the prayer of Chana and her praying uh, for, for fertility. A lot of really beautiful midrashim there. But the one that sticks out is where she turns to God and she basically says to God, if you will give me a child, fine. And if you don't, then you will see. And the Gemara says, well, what, what did she mean by that? And they say, well, she says to God, you know how that passage Sota promises a child to someone who has been accused of being a Sota but is innocent? It's really simple, God. I'm going to closet myself with another man, make my husband jealous. He will then accuse me of being a Sota. I'm going to be innocent because that's not my purpose in closeting myself with that man. And then you will have to give me a child. Otherwise, your Torah is complete emptiness. And and what's powerful there is the awareness that women who are barren will do virtually anything in order to have a child. And this suddenly unlocks a possibility, not of the shame and the humiliation, which are meant to be a deterrent, right? Really, Chazal see the Sota ritual as a deterrent for adultery. She's like, it's my way in. (laughs) (laughs) It's my way to get into this motherhood thing. And what she basically sees is a promise by God for a child. Mm -hmm. No questions, well, questions asked, but essentially, okay, so I have to do this, this amount of effort. I mean, think about all the women and the fertility treatments they go through and the years of painful, you know, the hormones and the injections and whatever they have to do to have a child. And I, lo- I love that Chazal understand. Chana is basically saying what in Hebrew we say, katanalai, right? Like, that's nothing. That's a no brain. That's all I have to do. Okay, yeah, it'll be uncomfortable. My husband will be jealous. We'll go, it'll get a little rocky. I'm going to have to go to the priest, whatever. But to have a child, and I find that very insightful, right? Astute. They then close it down by saying, oh, my God, we're going to be opening the door for all these women to pretend to be sotas. Some of them are going to end up failing and, uh, and, and will end up being seduced. You know, it'll end up creating more adultery or it'll, it'll cause more problems than anything. And if you say to me, why in the end does the sota ritual, according to the Mishnah, get shut down? The answer is not because of the chanas, it's because of the adulteresses. In other words, basically they say when lots of adultery proliferates and this ritual no longer has any sort of psychological or spiritual impact, it's not going to do what you and I talked about it doing, right? Mm -hmm. Bringing some sort of closure, some sort of tikkun, some sort of bearing of the sin. In the end, it's kind of like, you know, it's just not enough and adultery proliferates. That's uh, the reason in the Mishnah that we're told it gets shut down because it's it's just a mockery of what's supposed to be uh, a very powerful interaction between husband, wife, and Kohen. It's interesting, by the way, there are a number of sources that speak about the same idea, and we're not going to do sort of a comparative Talmudic study right now at the end of the episode, but there's another reading, I believe, from the Tosefta, which actually places the issue on the men, uh, and it basically it uses a proof text from that's brought from Hoshea and says, well, the reason that we couldn't do this anymore is because men were themselves being were being uh unfaithful unfaithful so it's just interesting that like you have a number of sources in chazal that a little bit try and and equalize or sort of balance the the sources we have here in the torah because here obviously it's very clear that the suspicion is on the side of the husband and it's towards the wife but i think that 
that that is a very a moving description of the the length that women struggling with infertility will go to in order to uh, to have to have a child. I would say, you know, just looking towards the end of the parsha, I, I know you've covered Nazir in a previous podcast. So much to say about that, but really, I want to uh, focus perhaps on one more piece of text: the the blessing of the priests. Because I think if we look at um, something that really brings a kind of light, it's not about hierarchy, it's not about power, and it's not about uh, diagnoses, and it's not about marital relationship. It's really being a channel of blessing between bringing that blessing down from God into the people. I really love that that comes towards the end of the parsha. I love that until this day, you know, when when I look around shul and people, uh, the kohanim are blessing the people. So many parents put the talit or mothers put their their hands on their child to kind of, you know, I think invite even more blessing, create this intimate little tent in which they're standing with their most beloved and they're, uh, they're, they're kind of absorbing the blessing even more directly. And so, you know, I, I think if I, I want to look at how the Parsha begins to wind down, the idea that we have these intense middle pieces, the Sota and the Nazir, and we are going to end with the Nisim, the, the princes, which, as you said, is, is a bit tedious. But let's not forget the gem of the blessing of the priests, which um, remains really prob- probably one of the best things that we have uh, in terms of what spiritual leadership can, can be, the idea that they are the conduit. Nechama, thank you so much for this conversation. It's always a pleasure to, to have you back on the podcast and to explore passages that are complex, but that we can also find, I think, really redeeming ways to look at them that I think are also, I think, are loyal to the, to the text themselves. So thanks for being here today. You're so welcome. And I always feel like I actually learn new Torah when I'm in conversation with you. So thank you, Yosefa. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.